following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, Love City Church. Good to see all of you. I praise God for you. If you don't know it, I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here, and I do a lot of the Bible teaching, which is what I have the great privilege of doing now. Uh, so if you would, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to look at the back half of 2 today. That's verses uh, 14 through 23. We're working through an eight-week series on Ruth, if you're new around here or just jumping in. And uh, we've got those last sermons. I don't really have time for a recap today, so... Uh, If you want to catch up, those are available online. Amen? Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you to turn, we will have the scriptures on the screen behind me. Uh, And we also have Bibles for free if you don't own one. We'd really like to give you one. As you're finding your way navigating uh, to the book of Ruth, there's something that uh, I'd like to share with you. It's it's an opportunity uh, for generosity. And so I want to uh, call to some, if you've been around here for a while, uh, call to your remembrance. We have a friend who ministers in India. His name is Charles Victor. Uh, The name of their church is Papa's House, and they also run an outreach ministry, uh, interestingly enough, called Love Valour. So Valour is the city that they're in. So essentially, it's kind of like Love City, but India version, right? So it's pretty cool. I like that. Amen. Uh, That's their outreach ministry. And so uh, Brother Charles, we, we talk fairly often, and, and they've got a couple things that have come up in, in recent uh, time span here that they could use our help with. So the first is, as many of you probably following uh, the news know, that uh, India had really bad resurgence of COVID-19, a lot of difficulties around that. And so they've been working, they're always doing food and outreach ministry in poor areas uh, where they're uh, serving, but it's been even worse. There's been a higher demand for the food and help and all of the needs that they're meeting. And so they could really use our help with that. The other thing, and it's been a couple years since Brother Charles has been with us, so I'll remind those of you that maybe have forgotten. They, Papa's House is a local church there that they uh, you know, seek to spread the gospel and do all that the local church does. But also, they're, they're trying to put together a compound that's going to have a few different things happening there. So the other thing is a school for young children that are abandoned or disabled, and a lot of times those two go together in that area, unfortunately. And so a lot of times they don't have opportunity for education, and uh, they're trying to fill that need. And so they're also um, in the process of building this school and teachers and all of that, but part of what they need to do that, the most pressing need at the moment, is solar panels, because the electricity grid, where they're at, is unreliable, and uh, so the best way to solve that problem is for them to install solar panels. It's a pretty significant cost, uh, and they just let me know about it, and I'm letting you know about it. Amen? So, what we've done is, on the website, uh, if you go to the giving page, there's in the drop-down tab, there's a place for India missions, okay? And so if uh, the Lord will put it on your heart to give towards that, we want you to know that that opportunity for generosity is available. And uh, we would ask you to pray about that, okay? As I've told you in the past, I think as blood-bought believers in Christ, uh, our right posture is probably to start with a yes when there's opportunities for generosity and then let the Lord tell you no. 
Anybody, anybody the Lord, they know the Lord already told them, no, I shouldn't be generous and help those folks in India. I think I saw one hand in the back, but I know that guy, I'll punch him later. Amen. Okay. Praise the Lord. Uh, now then, that I've shared that with you, interestingly enough, by, by us being alerted to this need from our friends in India at this time, I would say also by the providential hand of God, which is, of course, a mega theme in the book of Ruth, I believe I have been afforded the chance to set you up today, okay? And by setting you up, I don't mean tricking you or deceiving you with a gotcha at the end, okay? What I mean when I say setting you up, I mean it more like, like an assist in sports. Anybody ever play basketball? You know what an assist is, right? You've got the ball, you pass it off, that guy makes the goal. So when it, that's also known, it's, it's a setup, set up to, to hit the goal. And so I think I've been put in a position to be able to set you up today to hit the goal. Now, what is the goal? That's a great question. I can tell you're paying attention, and I'm glad you asked that. You got to know what the goal is for any of this to make sense. The goal here is for us to be able to assess ourselves today, to assess ourselves soberly and accurately as it pertains to the subject of generosity. Amen. I got one amen. It was from over here. So there's sanctified folks in this section over here. We'll see how the rest of you do the rest of the time, okay? You got to cheer for your section, man. It's a contest. Everything's a contest, always, okay? I'm just kidding. So, uh, and you might think, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into today? Well, we're not even stretching. The Lord orchestrated all this. We're just moving through the book of Ruth. I didn't know that we were going to get this word from our friends in India, and it was going to hit right in this time where we're going to have some scriptures that bring us just into a solid impact with the idea of generosity and give us an opportunity to assess ourselves, okay? So Ruth 2, 14 through 23. As we're reading this, I want you to see if you can see the setup, see how we've been put in a good position today to be able to assess ourselves soberly when it comes to the idea of generosity. Okay, so like I said, chapter 2, verse 14, here we go. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. I said I wasn't going to recap, but I just, I don't want anybody to be totally lost. So I'm going to go real quick. Uh, Elimelech moves his family to Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem, okay? He dies, his sons die. He had mar- they, they had both married uh, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah stays in Moab. Ruth comes back with Naomi, and they're in Bethlehem. Uh, she goes out to glean in the fields, which is basically pick up the scraps to try to survive. And this man, Boaz, who is the owner of the field, who is also a close relative, which is very important to know uh, because of the idea of a kinsman redeemer, which we'll get into later, uh, he notices her and he is kind to her. He's already shown kindness, but now he's showing even more kindness at this mealtime, right? That's where we find ourselves. Did anybody time that? That was like a 60-second recap of two chapters. All right, let's keep going. Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Guys, if you take a lady on a date and offer her bread and vinegar, this, that's not biblical or probably a good idea, okay? This was then. That's not going to work now. Unless she really likes vinegar. I guess find that out from her, but... Sounds weird to me. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, 
Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had, what she had left after she was satisfied. Okay, that's the rest of the lunch. Okay, that's, that's kind of important. Uh, her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Here we have Naomi saying, The Lord has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. That's a tone shift from where Naomi has been thus far. Yes? It's important. Okay. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said... Furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Praise God for his word. Amen. Amen. Now, the generosity of Boaz here is both undeniable and I would say exemplary. But I want us to ask this question first to frame our discussion properly. What do you think motivated Boaz's generosity? What do you think motivated Boaz's generosity? And here's what we need to know. This question matters very much. Because God is never merely concerned with our actions or our behaviors. He's always pressing beyond what we do and looking at why we do it. This is one of the keys to faithfully following Jesus. We cannot fall into the trap of thinking. He simply wants us to modify what we do or don't do. Jesus wants our hearts And that means he cares about our motives every time. Now, I want to propose to you that there is ample evidence here that Boaz understood the grace of God, and this is at least in large part what motivates his generosity towards Ruth. That's that's my big premise, that Boaz understood something of the grace of God. Now, some of you might be thinking... Okay, buddy, we know. You're a gospel preacher. We get it. Okay, so you're, you're always looking for some way to tie grace into your message. You're always doing that. But are, are you stretching a bit here? Where, where is that connection? And, and I would say, if, if you're thinking anything like that, that's it's fair. It, it's a fair accusation, and I'll take it. I am always looking for gospel-shaped grace in the scriptures because I believe that that is the central theme of the whole Bible. But what I'll ask from you is that you you give me a chance to make a case here and then decide if I'm stretching to insert grace into what we're seeing here as opposed to it it being here. Uh, How's that sound? Is that okay? Let me make a case before you throw rocks at me. Okay, praise the Lord. Now, I believe the specifics of how Boaz is generous here 
the specifics of how he's generous will lend some credibility to the thesis. The thesis being that at least in large part, Boaz was motivated by him having understood something of the grace of God. Okay, keep that kind of held up here as we move through. So I think the specifics will show us that of, of what he did, how he did it. But I think also if we pay close attention to the details of the story leading up to this interaction, I, I think there's, there's some good evidence to be found there as well. The details leading up to this. So what does that bring us to? Now, now that brings us to everyone's favorite part of the sermon. Okay, Everyone's favorite part of the sermon, at least here at Love City Church, is when I ask questions and try to get a few brave souls to actually verbally respond to me in front of all of these people. I, that's all of your favorite, right? Wow, okay, cool. Maybe, maybe I don't have a handle on the temperature of the room like I thought I did. No, I know it's not your favorite, but uh, here's the thing. Don't be scared because these are really easy and I even set the second question up where you've got a 50-50 shot. Okay, that's pretty good odds, right? Better than the casino's giving you. Amen. I know you guys don't go to the casino. Unless you're going to the buffet, right? They got good ribs. <laughs> Whatever, I don't care. I've eaten at the buffet at the casino. Amen. We're free in Christ. Um, okay, so here's the first question. This easy one, all right? In the beginning of the book, okay, why did Elimelech take his family to Moab? There was something very bad happening in Bethlehem. Elimelech flees to Moab with his family. What was happening? It was a, a famine. That's right. Okay, awesome. We got through that one. Now, last week, this one should be even easier. Last week, when Boaz was introduced in the beginning of chapter 2, do we find out that he is a man of great poverty or a man of great wealth? Great wealth. Boaz is a man of great wealth. So, we had a famine in the land that so bad that people were jetting, taken off, right? And then we're, we're introduced now to Boaz as a man of great wealth. So I'm asking you, is it reasonable to make the assertion that if Boaz has come out of the other side of a famine so bad that people were fleeing the country, he comes out of the other side of that being described as a man of great wealth, it's quite possible he has tasted something of the sweetness of God's grace, Amen. You guys did good on that one. That was a good amen spot, and you hit it. It's happening, Jesus. We're getting it. Hallelujah. I almost want to stop there just so, you know, end on a good note. No, we're going to keep going. There's a lot of good stuff there. Now, you may hear what I just said and be like, oh, yeah, well, I know rich people, though, right? Maybe it wasn't God's grace. Maybe, maybe he took advantage of everyone else's misfortune, and, and that's how he became wealthy. Why, why are you assuming it was God's grace? Well, I mean, okay, but based on how he treats this widowed Moabite immigrant, who, by the way, would have been one of the easiest people to take advantage of, by the way he treats her, I wouldn't think he probably became a wealthy man by taking advantage of people. That would be a much farther stretch than what we're kind of putting out here as the, the most likely option, okay? Uh, but, but like I said, him being wealthy after a really bad famine, it, it's only one piece of the puzzle because it's, it's the specifics of how Boaz is generous to Ruth that, that also reflects, I think, the grace and generosity of God. You see, 
The setup today is it's putting us in a great position to judge ourselves against this undeniable truth. This is, this is the truth. God's grace makes us givers. God's grace makes us givers. And so part of the position you're being put in, the setup, the assist that you're being given today through the scriptures, and I would say through the opportunity to give to our friends in India, is to ask yourself this question. If grace makes us givers, you have a chance today to ask yourself, has it made me a giver? Has grace made me a giver? Now, let me lay out these specifics for us, okay? The first thing I want us to see is that Boaz gave resources. Boaz gave resources. The fact that Boaz gave of his wealth in order to bless and help someone else, it it can tell us a lot about him. And the way you're feeling right now about a sermon that addresses what you do with your wealth can tell us a lot about you. Oh, that stung a little bit, didn't it? Ouch. Now, real quick, just in case I have someone in here thinking, man, Boaz gave her some grain, and here you are talking about wealth. See, pastors, preachers, they always want to make it about money. He gave her some barley, man. What are you talking about our wealth and money for? Well, listen, <laughs> if that's you or you're anywhere near that right at this moment, let me, let me say this first. I love you. Here, let me say this also. Um, I'm, trying not to be, I'm not really trying to be sassy here, but I just need to ask you a question. <clears throat> what, what do you think farmers do with their crops? They sell it for... Oh, there you go. All right, awesome. Amen. That wasn't too sassy, was it? Just, you know, when I get in made-up arguments with you, sometimes it just gets me a little fired up, so... All right, so every, what does that mean? That means every bit of barley that he gives Ruth was barley he couldn't sell, okay? And he gave her quite a bit, okay? Most of the time, gleaners would be shooting and going out and doing that very hard work. What they were shooting for most of the time was getting enough so that they could eat that day, okay? Ruth went home with enough, it tells us, for her and Naomi to eat for a week, So it wasn't just a little bit. This was a lot of generosity on Boaz's part. Gave her a lot. And you might be thinking, well, hey, man, you made a a big statement back there and you you didn't back it up. I'm glad you caught that. Why am I saying that Boaz being generous with his wealth can tell us a lot about him? That's that's kind of a big statement, right? I should back that up. I should do something about it. Well, why am I saying that? Because I'm just saying what Jesus said. Let me read this to you. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you can tell a lot about a person by what they do or don't do with the wealth in their hands. And see, here's what we're getting at. When you have experienced God's grace, you understand that nothing truly belongs to you anyways. Experiencing God's grace, how do I say that? That's another big statement. You're going to back that one up? Yes, I'm going to back up all my big statements. You're not going to catch me today, all right? 
Why am I saying that? Because experiencing God's grace is predicated on knowing you don't deserve it. Grace is the unearned and unmerited favor of God. I can guarantee you this. If you think you deserve God's favor, you do not yet understand grace. And I love you, and that's a big part of why I'm up here today and why we're here all the time is so that you will understand God's grace. But if you sit where you are this day, in this moment, thinking that you, something in you, merits God's favor, you have not yet understood God's grace. You're experiencing it because you haven't been flattened (laughs) under his wrath, but you don't yet understand it. Amen. When When we see the goodness of God, as the precious mercy that it is to us. And we understand that what we've earned for ourselves is only justice and punishment. It changes the way that we see the resources that he has allowed to rest in our hands. What that will cause us to do, I would say the the, the maturation of that kind of thinking It's a paradigm shift, and it looks like this. Instead of asking the question, how much of what I have should I give to God and give to others, we instead would be asking, how much of what God has given me should I keep for myself? Because isn't that the tension that we always get put in in these settings? The text leads us to the idea of generosity, so i got to talk about your money. It's, getting, it's got it, you know, everyone's a little on edge. I mean, I'm not. I don't know, do I look like I'm on edge? I'm not on edge at all. I mean, if, if you're new around here and you're like, oh, here we go, in one of these money-grubbing churches, I mean, go listen to a few more sermons, see if you can find me talking about money again. I mean, if, honestly, I probably don't do it enough. If the text forces me to, then I'm not going to avoid it. But uh, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm probably <clears throat> the short end of the stick on that if I compare how much Jesus talked about wealth and finances and how that intersects with our faith and obedience to God, right? <clears throat> is that trademark? That's like a wrestler's move, isn't it? I probably shouldn't do that. It's on the internet. Sorry, Triple H or whoever that was. I didn't mean to steal your thing, man. <clears throat> so as I read you earlier, okay, what we do with material resources is one of the best ways to tell where our allegiance, our affections And our hope truly lies. We can see a lot about Boaz in the fact that he gave very generously of material resources. I'm hoping I don't need to spell out any further for you how that is a setup. It's an assist for you. The word of God being able to be a mirror here to judge your own thoughts about giving and generosity and God's grace and how all of that works together, right? That's hopefully fairly self-explanatory. But how about a respite? Would you like to get off money for a minute? We're going to anyways, whether you want to or not. So unless you're a glutton for punishment, we'll we'll probably come back and touch it some more. It wasn't just in material resources that that Boaz was generous. I want to show you this as well. Boaz didn't just give resources. Boaz gave encouragement. Boaz gave encouragement, and it can be harder for some people to be generous with that than it is to be generous with their finances. Amen. How do I see that? Well, 
Let's, this meal that we see described in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. This, this meal and the way it was done, in particular, this, there's a reason why the Bible makes a point here to tell you he invited her to dip her bread in the vinegar. For us, it doesn't, it doesn't carry the same significance. For, for them, this was a sign of trust. It was a sign of, uh, it was a sign of friendship, and it was a sign of equality to have someone sit at your table and, and dip into the bowl with the master of the house. It was, it was communicating a lot about how Boaz wanted her to see herself in the situation, okay? Now, I'm gonna, some of you are thinking it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm super glad we've got rid of that custom because I don't really want to dip my fingers in a bowl with any of you and then be eaten. Love you, but if you come to my house, I'm going to give you your own bowl. I'm going to have my own bowl, and we're still going to feel warm and fuzzy about it. We'll sit at the same table, okay? Amen. <laughs> you can have your own bowl of dip. Anyways. <clears throat> and, and why is this a big deal? Well, in verse 13, which we read last week, Ruth had already pointed out her assumed inequality, right? She's, she's saying almost in wonder to Boaz, you're treating me like your, your handmaids, though I am not like them. She understands how everyone else would be viewing her as a Moabitess, as a widow, in particular that she's an immigrant from a country that is enemies with Israel, okay? Not good. She doesn't see herself as, she's almost, she's taken aback by Boaz's kindness, even in the beginning, that he would allow her to kind of accompany his workers and to drink from the water jars that, that they collected to refresh herself, to sit in the house and rest in the middle of the day. But now he's going even a step further, inviting her to the table, inviting her to dip her bread in with him. There's a, a high level of significance there. And, and you may, some of you, there may be a cross-reference kind of ringing off for you. If you think about when Jesus, at the Last Supper, he, he said, somebody is betraying me, someone who's dipped their hand in the bowl with me. Why did he say that? Because again, you might be like, okay. Because of what it meant. Because it, it had this significance for them of trust and friendship and equality. If you were dipping your hand in the bowl with the master, you were trusted. There was care there, okay? It, it said something, okay, about who you were. And here's the beauty of what that means. That tells us for sure that Boaz didn't care about what others thought Ruth deserved, what the rest of the community at this point, knowing that she's a, a Moabite, he didn't care, he wasn't worried about what the association of having that Moabite woman at his table was going to mean for his reputation. Didn't care. He didn't even care. He didn't care what everyone else might think. He didn't even care about what she thought she deserved. He was overriding that because she had already said, I'm, I'm not like, thanks for the kindness, but she's sheepish. Like I, but I'm, I know I don't really deserve what you're doing here. He takes it even a step further. He's not going to let her stay in that place of feeling like she's not worthy. He offers, he's generous with encouragement. And what does that lead us to? It leads us to a great setup, a great assist here for us to examine ourselves. Again, 
Would you say, here's a good question, would you say that you actively look for chances to encourage other people? Do you actively look for chances to encourage other people? Is an intentional part of the way you conduct yourself in life? Are you, are you more prone, let's say it a different way, are you more prone to notice what someone is doing well, or are you more prone to notice what they could be doing better? That may be a little more helpful question in actually judging ourselves about this soberly, because when I said, you do a good job encouraging people, most of you are probably like, yeah, yeah I think so, probably. But then if you really get down to the nitty-gritty, if you really get down to assessing yourself in a real sober way and ask yourself this way, what, if, I walk in, if I walk into a room or I'm dealing with a situation, I'm dealing with people, and, and I'm, I'm assessing what's going on, am I more prone, off-rip, to notice what's be done, being done well or what's being, what, what could be improved? And listen, some of that comes down to the wiring and, and the way God makes us, and we need people to notice when things aren't being done well. But I'm talking about a disposition of encouragement. That if you're somebody that is wired to notice more what could be done better, great, amen, I'm sure that's part of the gifting God has given you, but, you, but that means you're going to have to work extra hard to be somebody that sees the opportunities when they arise for encouragement and to be generous with it. And why? Why is all of that so important? Well, the... <clears throat> psychologists and others that, that would be able to speak uh, authoritatively on this idea. I've, I've, I've heard different figures. I've read a lot about this because the idea intrigues me. But there's, depending on the person, depending on the expert, you know, there's probably a, a range here. But a lot of times you'll hear the number like five to ten. It takes, it takes five to ten positive, affirming, encouraging statements to the average person to undo one negative statement. And what that tells us is, for, for whatever reason, most of us, negative statements stick to us far better than encouraging positive statements, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to turn you all into care bears, okay, where you're just skipping around all the time throwing rainbows and, and uh, sugar in the air. How do you throw rainbows in the air? I don't know. I was imagining stickers or something. Don't, that analogy wasn't thought out, so don't ride me about it, Okay. Do you get my point? But I'm asking you to really honestly assess your own disposition. Are you generous with encouragement? If you're not sure, ask some people in your life. And I'm serious about that. If you're married, start with your spouse. Mm-hmm. Gosh, stung myself with that one. If you have children, ask them. Co-workers, right? Because here's, why, why, am I, why is the whole premise of this sermon that we need a setup, we need an assist to help ourselves to, to, to self-assess and to soberly judge? Well, because it's not easy, right? Because we just, a lot of times we make assumptions and, and um, we, oftentimes we, we tend to cut ourselves slack and give ourselves credit and where maybe we shouldn't. So let me say this to make sure... I kind of already did, but I just want to make sure it's said plainly. What I'm not saying in encouraging you towards a disposition of intentionally living your life, looking for opportunities to encourage people, that this is something that God would 
would want from us. I think it's something that Boaz did here very intentionally. This, this would have helped to shape the way Ruth was thinking of herself and seeing herself, her potential and value. Okay? What I'm not saying, though, is that we should never offer love-motivated critique to help people grow. Of course we should. That's biblical as well. That's something that the door should be open to between spouses. That's something we have to do with our kids, right? If that's not something that's happening often, if you're married, I would encourage you to open up a conversation about that. Hey, what do, where do you see that I could grow, right? But prepare yourself for them maybe having an answer and not getting super offended and pouty about it. Okay. You know, it kind of goes back to that whole understanding God's grace thing and not assuming you've already got it all figured out. Like, hello. I mean, if you think you're perfect, you're, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you're just not seeing things accurately. So I'm, we do offer love-motivated critique. That's, that's part, that, that is as loving as encouragement done the right way, okay? Um, but my question is, what is your default? Is, is there room for you to grow in generosity as an intentional encourager? That's, that's what I'm asking you to assess. Uh, some of you, there, I can think of some people that are very intentional and and very gifted at this. I, I, so I know not everybody's at the same place on it, but there's, there's probably room, even the best among us at this, there's probably room to continue to grow. Even, even if it just comes down to the motive level, right? Because even if you've gotten good at saying nice things to people instead of mean things, it's an oversimplification of what I'm saying, but uh, what, what's going on in your heart about it? What's the motives driving that? Because Jesus isn't going to leave us alone until we get all the way down to there. Because he loves us, right? And that's what matters. So the, the third thing I want to show you, so I'm making a case. Boaz gave resources. I think that shows us a lot about him understanding the grace of God and what that meant about the situation. Um, he, he gave encouragement. He was generous with encouragement. I think that shows us something of his understanding of the grace of God. The last thing I'm going to give you is that Boaz gave more than what was required. Boaz gave more than what was required. And this is, they all have weight. This one really, for me, kind of points to this idea of, of Boaz understanding the, the grace of God. Because when you understand the grace of God, when, when somebody stands up, for instance, and tells you about needs uh, of a ministry in India... When you understand the grace of God, and that's functioning properly, it, it, it will help you to move from somebody presenting needs that, that are requiring whatever it is, time to meet those needs, or material resources to meet those needs. It'll help you shift your thinking from obligation and kind of a begrudging, well, I probably should do something, moving from that kind of mindset to from, from obligation to opportunity, that genuinely, how, and how beautiful is that? Think about that. That when, when needs are presented to you, that you, you legitimately see that as an opportunity. That because of how the grace of God is operating in your heart and life, affecting the way you think and perceive things around you, that literally opportunities to give, you see those as opportunities. 
chances to give you see as opportunities. Amen. The, the generosity of Boaz goes far beyond what is required. Uh, and and, and I'm, what I'm saying is this, this is, is an outflow of experiencing the grace of God. Now, why am I saying it was far more than what was required? Well, we talked a little bit about this last week. The, built into the law was this idea of, of gleaning, right? So property owners were not allowed to harvest all the way out to the edges of their fields. Uh, they, they couldn't maximize profits on the field. They had to leave some there so that the, the, the poor that needed it could come and glean. Basically, they could pick up the scraps. If their, if their harvesters dropped some on accident, they weren't supposed to stop and pick up every little kernel to make sure they got every penny they could. This, there was this idea that there's going to be foreigners, there's going to be travelers, there's going to be immigrants, there's going to be those of the household of Israel who are poor and destitute, that those gleanings, those extras, are to be left for them. Okay? Boaz didn't just allow Ruth to do that bare minimum gleaning of those things. We heard him say to his workers, don't, first of all, let her harvest just like you're harvesting. Don't, don't get in her way. Let her get at the good stuff. And don't just do that. When she's not looking, we want to preserve her dignity. We don't want her to feel like she's a charity case. But here's what I also want you to do. Drop some on purpose. Make it easy for her. Which is why, it's the only way. That's why Naomi is blown away when Ruth shows up with an ephah of barley. She's like, hold, that's not gleaning. Something's happened. What happened? She was in Boaz's field, (laughs) is what happened. Okay? And, and, And just so you know, this idea of grace informing the way we think about giving is, it's a big reason why we here at Love City, we don't fo- focus heavily on the idea of or the language of a tithe, okay? And I realize that's going to hit all different kinds of people in different ways. So, and, and once I explain, everybody that might be all frazzled about what I just said will probably calm down. But I understand there's people on one end who have been taught traditionally for a long time that uh, I mean, the tithe is it, man. That's, that's the way we talk about giving in the church. That's God's law about it, and, and that's it. And then there's, there's people on the other end probably the same folks that were maybe annoyed that I said the word money in a sermon at all. <laughs> like, you know, tithe, you know, that was supposed to be a hiss. It wasn't really, I don't know. It didn't come out right. Whatever. I'm not that good at sound effects. I need to practice. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's, that's encouragement right there. Intentional encouragement. That's a gift from God right there. Amen. We don't focus heavily on the tithe because Honestly, <clears throat> grace, grace demands more than a regimented obedience to a law about giving, right? And so it's not that we've gotten, we've gotten fluffy or we think people are going to be offended by the word tithe, and so we're just going to avoid it. That's, that's not the point. The point is, when you look at what Jesus came and did and said and taught, when Jesus talked about the law, he would say things like, well, you've heard it said, and he'd rattle something off, like the way the law said it. And then and he'd say, but I say to you, and then he would take it times 10, right? He'd say like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even lust after a woman in your heart. Uh, okay. <laughs> so is that, what did grace do there? What did, what did the very epitome of grace in the person of Jesus Christ do there? Did he make, did he make it? A lower bar to reach or a higher bar to reach as a result of grace? That's right, because the law was never meant to be the thing that 
that joined us to God and intertwined our hearts with God and gave us the ability to live and move and breathe the way we were designed to in the blessing and in the glory of God. It was always going to be coming to him in relationship through grace so that our hearts could be changed, so that our motives could be changed, not just our external behaviors. That was always the point. And so how do we talk about giving here? We talk about giving that if, if you are a blood-bought believer, if you've experienced and tasted the grace of God, you should give regularly and you should give sacrificially. And that's going to mean different things for different people. I would say most, I'm just going to say this. So let, where's your toes at? Let me get them. Here we go. For the average American, most of the time, the tithe should probably be treated as a floor to our giving and not a ceiling. Although I'm going to say, somebody that's in Ruth and Naomi's position, they may give a half percent of their income, man, and they're going to feel that deeply. It's sacrificial, and that's the point. Jesus gave until it hurt a lot. We should give until it hurts at least a little. At least a little. I always, I always think about when I'm, when I'm this concept, when I'm thinking about it, it's uh, John Deere, man. John Deere tractors, right? The green ones. You know what I'm talking about? I know you guys are all urbanites or whatever, but you know what John Deere is. Guy made money, right? <laughs> okay. He got to the point where he lived on 10% of his income and gave 90% away. I'm not calling it. I know most of you are not in the position to be able to do that. You don't have John Deere money, okay? But I'm just saying, man, what that, that heart right there, how much can I, how much can I max out the giving side to And what can I carve away so that I'm keeping the least amount of possible for myself? That is a grace-informed attitude around giving and generosity. Amen. Well, I'm not quite there yet. Thank God he's patient, isn't he? (laughs) And he's kind and merciful and long-suffering, and he's going to keep working on us with it. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Grace-empowered generosity also goes farther than we know. Here's what I want you to think about. When you, because of these concepts around the grace of God, and you understand how much he has given to you, how he held nothing back for you, all that he has poured out upon you by showering you with his grace and mercy, and and, and then you begin to live out of that in a generous way, the effects of that go farther than likely you will ever see. It's, It's like... It's like throwing a rock in a pond. There's that impact point, but then there's ripples that go out from there. And, and that, is, that is always the case. Let me see. Let me see who's, I want to get an idea of how many like crusty old school, old time Christians I got up in here. Okay, so who first of all knows the name Ray Bolts? Put your hand in the air if you know who Ray Bolts is. Okay, I'm not alone. Praise God. So Ray Bolts was this guy. None of you youngsters would like his music, but he had this song. And it was like, uh, the premise of the song was like, people showing up in eternity and thanking folks because they had given to the Lord. They never understood that their generosity somehow came around and touched their life, but it did. And so there's this scene in eternity of people running up and thanking one another. Thank you for giving to the Lord. You have no idea how that helped me. And, and I, you know, Ray Bolt's song ain't the Bible, so I'm not trying to say it is, but I could totally see that being the case, and and I'm excited. I'm excited to, once I know how so many other people sowed into my life without ever even meeting me, and I'm going to get to spend a bunch of time expressing gratitude and honor, thanking them 
for that faithfulness. And we, this idea that I'm saying, it's, it's staring us right here in the face because Boaz's generosity to Ruth it very quickly extends to Naomi, doesn't it? Right? He was, he was looking to, to bless Ruth and to help her, but automatically that ripple effect went out and his generosity to Ruth now touches Naomi's life. And the other thing that this scene does... <laughs> You'll like this. It answers a common objection to biblical teaching on generosity. You'll, you'll, you'll hear people contest and say, well, I, I don't have enough to be generous. I don't have enough resources to be generous. And I would just like to submit to you, if that's your position or something you've been tempted to think before, that Ruth was about as desperate and poor as you can get. She's relying on gleanings to survive, Okay. Is you with me? That's pretty rough. That's a pretty bad spot. But here's what we see. Remember, remember when I stopped when I was reading in those verses and I explained to you, it's not, it's kind of the wording's a little tough to catch. She doesn't just bring the gleanings home. It says she also took out what she had left and gave it to her. But it's kind of mixed in there with the rest, and you wouldn't quite notice it unless you're paying attention. Ruth didn't finish her lunch on purpose knowing it was going to take her all day to finish gleaning. Then she was going to have to beat it out and gather it up. And then if she was to take it home, it's going to be late at night and you're going to have to try to roast that grain and prepare it in some way for Naomi to be able to eat. So Ruth doesn't finish her lunch and brings the rest of that bread home to her mother-in-law. So I just want you to take that scene and apply it to the idea that I don't have enough to be generous. Maybe that's not the right way to think about it. Maybe it's the biblical principle that if you can be trusted with a little bit, then you can be trusted with much. And this is the God's honest truth. I, look, man, I know, I know lots of very poor people by name. I know a lot of people experiencing homelessness by name. I talk to them every week. But I also know some of the wealthiest people in Cincinnati. I know these people, and I talk to them about these ideas. And I'll tell you what, I've seen so many people with nothing basically, reach into their pockets and give what little bit they have to others. And I've also talked to a bunch of very wealthy people that will tell you every single zero you add to those checks that you give, it gets harder and you got to think about it more. It's more of a temptation to try to justify doing less. Again, Boaz was a man of great wealth. We already took the time to discuss the reality that socioeconomic status does not determine righteousness, right? If you didn't hear that sermon, go back and listen to it. It's very important. Don't get the wrong idea here. This isn't rich versus poor. One is good, one is bad. No, 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 no. Actually, generosity is the principle that allows us to navigate all of that. Part of what's going to determine whether you're wicked poor or wicked rich or righteous poor or righteous rich is whether or not you understand this concept of generosity. Wherever you are in the spectrum. And it's interesting too. So I pointed out to you that Boaz, we're talking about why it's safe to believe that part of Boaz's motivation in being generous to Ruth was that he understood the grace of God. That's the big premise of the sermon. You still follow me on that? So we talked about the fact that it means when someone gives of material wealth, that says a lot, okay? Because that's hard to do, right? It's very easy to worship money. It's very easy to 
be greedy and all of that. And so, so the, the grace of God is, we can see how that would propel someone towards generosity with material wealth. We talked about how Boaz was generous with encouragement and, and saw the need for that and, and how he has experienced the grace of God in his life. And so he would want to then reflect that to Ruth. And it's interesting that when we're talking about this ripple effect, making it to Naomi, it's not just that she was able to eat that night and now had an ephah of barley to deal with and, and be able to eat the rest of the week. So it wasn't just the material generosity that reached her. The encouragement also reached her. We stopped and, and noticed the change in her language. Blessed. Blessed be the one whom the Lord used in this way. The Lord who has not withheld kindness from the living or the dead. Right? We just left the previous chapter where Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore because that means pleasant. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. The Lord's hand is against me. We see now through Boaz's generosity to Ruth and now Ruth's generosity to Naomi, that encouragement, it trickles down. And her heart is being encouraged about the goodness of God. And that's, that's why generosity is such a powerful tool for opening people's eyes to the goodness of God, his worthiness to be worshipped. We see it happening right here. It showed Naomi the provision of the Lord. And the last thing I, I just want to point out to you, I, I, most of you knew it was coming, this talk of grace and how it's woven into the motivations of Boaz, I, I just want to say plainly, in case it isn't already plain, the character and the generosity of Boaz is one of the clearest gospel foreshadowings in the Old Testament. In my opinion, but in a lot of people's opinion. We won't be out on a branch saying that by any means. Why am I saying that? Friends, I'm talking about a clear gospel foreshadowing, how the character and generosity of Boaz gives us a forward look to the generosity, kindness, goodness of Christ himself. How so? What are the comparisons? Well, first of all, Boaz doesn't just tell his servants to help Ruth so that he can stay at a distance from the messiness of Ruth's struggle, right? He comes close and he gets right involved himself. He comes and sits right at the table with her. He says, dip your hand in the bowl right here with me. But it sounds a lot like Jesus to me. He didn't just send some angels down here to try to fix the mess we made. No, no, no. He, he got down off the throne of heaven and came down here in the dirt with us because that's what was required. That's what it was going to take for him to take on flesh to suffer like we suffer, to be tempted like we are tempted so he could be the sacrifice that would pay the price for our sins. God himself got right in the middle of the mess. What does that say about him? <laughs> what a God. A, a God so mighty he creates everything and yet is still humble? What? It doesn't even seem to compute so much about God that should just leave you with hands lifted and heart overflowing with joyful worship. And we also see here, this is important, it wasn't just that Ruth and Naomi, it wasn't just that they, they needed the blessings Boaz could provide. They didn't just need his resources. What we're beginning to see here, and it's going to become more clear the more we work through this book, 
They didn't just need his resources. They didn't just need his blessings. They needed him. They needed him. Why am I saying that? Well, look, where does the conversation go? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. So up to this point, it's like, we got to eat half of barley. Someone was really generous. This is really cool. The focus could be on the blessing. The focus could be on the provision. But where does it go? Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, with his maids, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And if it's not clear to you yet, it will be as we continue to move through. I can't start talking about chapter three because you'll be in trouble. Uh, and so will I. So primarily with the children's workers in an hour from now. Um, but here's the point I'm trying to make. The, it's the, the, I'm talking about how, how the generosity, kindness, character of Boaz reflects Christ. We're seeing this reality that what, what becomes most important in this thing is not that Boaz had some things he could give them, but it's that they could end up in relationship with Boaz and what that was going to mean, that he is the kinsman redeemer that they were looking for. This, the book of Ruth is so soaked with gospel reflections that, it, I mean, we could spend all day, and, and we will more as we continue to go, but all of this to say, I'm closing. Here's, here's my hope. May those who, within the sound of my voice, those who are hearing this today, and maybe you have yet to experience God's grace in this way, my hope and my prayer for you today is you would see his goodness and that you would trust him today. And my hope and my prayer for those of you who have tasted and understood God's grace in this way, that you'll follow his example and you'll give yourself away in radical generosity. Because friends, that's, that's really what this comes down to. It, this is not about your stuff. Really, it's not. Romans 12, verse 1, it, it calls us to lay ourselves down as a living Sacrifice. It lays out this idea that the right response to the grace of God and all that he has done in Christ is nothing less than laying ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice in response to God's grace. So if that's the right response, and that's what we're doing, we lay ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice. If you're on the altar, your stuff will be too. It's pretty simple. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for this second half of Ruth chapter two. God, thank you for the evidence of your grace we see coming through in the life of Boaz and his dealings with Ruth and now with Naomi. God, may we be May we be enamored and intrigued by that idea that, that the grace of God has this power to transform the way we conduct ourselves, not, 
not in a legalistic way, not because somebody tells us what all the rules are and so we get motivated to follow the rules and in hopes that maybe this God will be pleased with us or this, this God won't cast us away. But Lord, may we understand that your grace, it runs that whole thing in reverse and, and we see how good and wonderful, patient, loving, kind and gracious you are. We experience the beauty of your mercy, and it, it, that changes our desires. It's not trying to get you to do something else for us. It's a response to all that you've already done. And Lord, we ask that in whatever ways we have room to grow, as we live out our response to your good grace, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue that process of growth in us. For some of us, Lord, we still struggle to connect how Responding to your grace, a natural outflow of your grace would be that we are generous with material resources. That still sticks in the craw of some. And Lord, I ask on their behalf that you would love them and you would help them, that you would move upon them by your Holy Spirit, that Lord, you'd be gentle but firm with them and you would help them to see how it is perhaps they're shackled by that thinking. Lord, for some, they struggle to have a disposition of encouragement to be somebody that intentionally is always looking to lift others up and to speak life. And sometimes it's insecurity that drives that. Sometimes it's just, it's been a hard life and it's, it's shaded our vision towards the negative. God, please help us to see how your grace and your mercy, it frees us and opens us up to be able to walk in that ministry of being encouragers. Lord, we don't want to just Look at the example of Boaz today and walk away nodding our heads, having retained some facts. Lord, I pray that today genuinely was a setup, that it was an assist, that it put us in a position to soberly judge ourselves and that we will come to you and ask for your help to grow, to continue becoming more like you. Thank you that you won't give up on us, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.